Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, like family, like family dedications, like communion every single time we take communion, um, like a wedding ceremony. Uh, these, is a, these are all covenantal um, ceremonies, covenantal relationships that we are invited into. And so it's not just about the commitment that they make, it's about the, the witnesses that are receiving it as well. And so all of us who are in, in, um, in earshot, all of us who are witnesses of the dedication, all of us who are witnesses of these baptisms, not only this week, the last two weeks as well, 15, 16 people being baptized. We are witnesses to help them on this journey. And so let's do what we can to assist them. Amen? All right. So a few months ago, I did something that I don't regret, but it certainly challenged um, the last few months. I asked you, what do you want to learn about? And it's been fun um, delving into these questions and getting to uh, the bottom of some of these really challenging issues uh, with you all as we've uh, gone through this series, Asking for a Friend. And the reality is there were a bunch of questions at the end that I was like, I don't really know if these have a place. And so today I'm going to kind of do a lightning round of sorts to close out this series. Uh, I'm going to address eight, maybe nine questions. If I don't get... if if I just long-winded, you know, I, I babble sometimes, so we'll, we'll finish it up next week if we don't get to the end of it. But um, I do want to tell you that before we get too far, about a third of the questions that I received all had to do with sexuality. And so thank you for that. And uh, <clears throat> I was like, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't do that topic justice in, you know, one message. And so the entire month of July, friends, we are going to do a series called Let's Talk About You and Me. Whenever I bring up this idea that I'm doing a talk, a, ta- a series on this topic, people's response is, you're crazy. Why would you walk into that war zone? And here's what I think. The church has largely been silent on sexuality. But do you know what happens in the absence of clear communication? Assumptions are formed. And this is just a this this is a relational tip for you all for anybody in a relationship. Assumptions always grow in the absence of clear communication. And so, whether you're a husband and a wife, children, be very clear about your expectations. Be clear about the way you communicate, about how you're feeling, about what you're experiencing, because then assumptions won't have room to grow. Not only does the world assume what the church thinks on this issue, the lack of sexual discipleship from the church has told the world that we entrust it to educate us on this topic. And so I'm not going to claim to have all the answers, but with an immense amount of humility, we are going to start the conversation on July 2nd. I recognize that we oftentimes have a lot of youth in our services. So parents, you'll have to decide what you want to do with this these conversations. But let me just reiterate the point that if we are not educating our youth, if we are not discipling our youth, then the world is going to educate our youth on this topic. And so I would be encouraging of you to, again, very humbly, trust me with your kids on this topic. 
but you are certainly adults and you can do what you would like to do. We are going to wrestle with this um, biblically, but with an immense amount of compassion as well. In addition, I'm going to put together a discussion guide for parents uh, so that hopefully this conversation can continue and you'll have some tools then to do some sexual discipleship within your own household. So I encourage you to join us on the month of July as we wrestle with that topic. The first question that I want to address this morning of our lightning round is this. How do we know that the Bible can be trusted? Anybody ever asked that question before? Are you reading your Bible like, can I really put my faith into this book? Is this really? How do I know? See, there are a lot of big words we toss around when speaking of Christian scriptures. We call it a holy book. We say things like it's inerrant or it's infallible or... It's God-breathed. I don't know. There's a lot of words that we, that we throw around, right? It's without error. It's, without, it's, it's in no need of correction. And when we, when we speak of the Bible in this way, we're essentially saying that it is true because it's from God. It's true because it's from God. This is God's word. It's God, God's authority is mediated by these words. God's character is known through these words. This is God's special revelation. Without the scriptures, we would have limited, insufficient knowledge of who God is and what he has done for us. But here's the thing, just saying stuff like that doesn't make it true. Even though that is all true, just saying it doesn't make it true. A lot of religious texts would claim the same thing about their deities. That this is, you know, the way that God is the gods or the God has revealed himself or herself to us. And so here's where the Bible is special among other sacred texts of other religions. The Bible is God's word mediated by human authors. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky, in other words. It was written by real people in real history with real lives and experiences and writing styles and cultures and varying societies with real problems and real doubts and real insecurities. It, did, it didn't fall in the sky, right? It, it, didn't, it didn't magically appear upon the planet. You might be thinking, yeah, I, that's, that's, I, that's why I wonder if it can actually be trusted. But it's actually one of the reasons why I do trust it. Because it was, pre- it was presented, right? It was, it was, it's presented as one cohesive document written over 2,000 years by, you know, some 35 different people. And this is exceptionally unique among all of the religious texts of all the other religions. All of which essentially say, hey, yeah, they fell from the sky. You know, Buddha, Buddhist teaching, you know, was, was basically the compilation of the very first Buddha. He had an apprentice, and that apprentice wrote down what that one Buddha said. And so you have one guy who says, I heard what he said. Here's what he said. You know, Muhammad, with the, the text of Islam, the Quran, right, he, he received that text from the angel Gabriel in a cave by himself. All, he was by himself, right? Um, I think of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, right? He comes out of the woods all by himself, having received these golden tablets. All of these people would claim that they received the divine word, but there were no checks and balances. They were all by themselves when they received this divine word. No one other than Muhammad could confirm that Gabriel appeared to him. Joseph Smith was alone when he found that the tablets that began Mormonism. One man said, this is what the Buddha taught. One guy who in each religion rise to supreme authority. Listen to this. The, the leader of the religion found the sacred text that they dictated from God himself. Anybody see a problem with that? No checks, no balances. Their authority is derived by the idea that a God penned them, and if a God penned them, you better do what they say. Fear, not love, motivated people to initially read and obey these texts. Because this is the case, their authors didn't need to pad them with narrative 
and storylines. They needed doctrine and direction and commandments and rules. They sought to create a religion, and it is by the nature of religion to control behavior and thereby to control people. So although it's true that these texts do contain stories, their point is not to tell a story. Their point is to give direction and instruction on behavior. And although it's true that the Bible does provide direction and instruction on behavior, the Bible is primarily about God, his movement, not dictating ours. The Bible is primarily about God and what he's done, not about us and what we should do. The Bible is primarily a story we're invited into, not a list of rules that we are commanded to follow. The Bible is news. It's telling us something that happened. And without this, something that happened in real history, the Bible never would have come into existence because nobody would have cared and no one would have bothered to have written it. The writings of the Bible, they don't promote control. They don't promote, they, they, they promote surrender. The fundamental teaching of the Bible is nonsense to the world. As one of the, the New Testament writers, Paul wrote, it's foolishness to the, to the, uh, to the Jews and it's weakness to the Romans. No one seeking to gain control or to create a religion would have ever written or advocated for the Bible. Its climax is weakness and death and shame and humility. You see, Jesus may be the God that we need, but he is not the God that religious teachers want. want, The way of Jesus does not advocate for power or wealth or control. Jesus advocates for sacrifice and surrender and love. And this is why when the leaders of the Christian movement gain control and wealth and power, this is like the 1,700-year history of the church, they intentionally kept the Bible detached from the commoner. And they made the official language of Christianity Latin, a language that nobody spoke. This is why in the 15th century, William Tyndale, right, he, he, he's, he's a scholar and he wants to make the Bible accessible to the commoners. And so he does. He translates the Bible into a language that the common people can read for themselves. Do you know what they did to him? They strangled him. This is the church leaders strangled him, drug him to a stake and burned him. Because we don't want the Bible accessible to the commoner. Because what happens when you get to understand what the Bible says for yourself? What happens to me? I lose control of you. And so the Bible does not promote control. The Bible does not do for religious people what religious people want the Bible to do for them. If the Bible weren't true and if it didn't realign hearts and households and communities to God's authentic design for the world, it never would have survived. People would have abandoned it because it does not do for religious teachers what a religious text is supposed to do. It doesn't benefit people other than to save them and to realign their purpose to God's preordained, created purpose for people. But how many of us praise God that that is enough? And so I believe the word is true because I've experienced the word to do what the word says it's supposed to do. Change me. Anybody else experience that? So the next question is then, how do we know God is triune and what does that even mean? Well, within that trusted text... God is spoken of as three persons in one being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Trinity, we find differentiated persons all bound together, unified in reciprocating agape love relationship. And there's a lot of scripture I could, I could tell you about where we get these notions. But within Trinitarian reciprocating agape, agape is simply the word for love in the Bible. It's self-sacrificial. It's other-oriented. It's, it's bending low. It's dying. It's pouring out for the benefit of others. The nature of agape is so radical that it actually defines the unifying essence of the triune God. Agape love, by its very nature, it, it must exist in community because it draws its participants together in unity when it is in reciprocity. And reciprocity just means back and forth. 
So the, you get, what you see in the Trinity is the, the Father pouring himself out for the benefit of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Son pouring himself out for the benefit of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit pouring himself out for the benefit of the Father and the Son. Right? There's reciprocity back and forth, this beautiful motion, this movement, this dance is taking place within the Godhead of, of love, this bending, of, of pouring out, of giving. But here's the thing, we need, we need to be careful to not mitigate God's three-person nature for the sake of the unifying agape love. God's three-person nature represented as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is necessary from one another. It is the distinctive otherness that keeps the unifying agape essence from collapsing into modalism. And that's a, a fancy theological term that simply means that God presents himself in three different ways. Oftentimes we think, well, God is just presenting himself throughout history in three different ways. He was the Father in the Old Testament. He was the Son in the New Testament. Now he's the Holy Spirit. That's modalism. That's a heresy. We don't believe that here. We could equally err on the side and strip God of his unifying agape nature and end up with three entirely distinct demigods. So without the unifying agape nature of God, we would be worshiping three distinct gods and thus promoting polytheism. That's also a heresy. We don't believe that here as well. If the unifying God is lost, if the, we end up with tritheism. If the differentiation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is lost, we end up with modalism. Both are her- heretical within Christian orthodox. So the Christian understanding of the triune God is three different persons bound together in the one unifying essence of agape love. I could spend a whole trimester talking about the Trinity, but you got one minute on it, so I apologize. Out of this love, God overflowed, which brings us to our next question. Can a Christian believe in evolution? Sure, is my answer. Okay, on to the next question. A few, a, few th- a few quick things about the creation text. It was written in, anybody know the language it was written in? Hebrew. It wasn't written in English. That's a really important part of this conversation, okay? It means that we need to understand what the Hebrew words mean, not our assumptions about what the English words mean. For example, the word bara, which we translate create, didn't mean, doesn't mean to bring something out of nothing. Oftentimes when we think of the creation text, aren't we thinking of God pulling something together that previously didn't exist out of nothing? That's not what bara means. It means to assign roles and functions to physical properties that didn't yet have roles and functions. We see this also with the words tohu and bohu. They don't mean formless and empty in Genesis 1. As if nothing existed and God is creating something, bringing it into being, they mean unproductive and chaotic. And so my contention is that Genesis 1 is not describing how the material world came into being. I know that's controversial. I I don't think that Genesis 1 is telling us how the material world came into being. It's describing how God takes the chaotic condition of an already established world and brings it to the point of peace for his purpose. How long did this take? I have no idea. When did it happen? I have no idea, and I don't think the Bible is interested in answering those questions either. If this is true, the questions our scientific world are asking about the beginning of a material world are not the questions the Bible is interested in answering. The only absolute answer the Bible gives about the beginning of a material world is that God did it. I suggest that it does not tell us how or when. In my understanding, the point of Genesis 1 is twofold. First, it is an anthem of hope. It is a testimony of the darkness distilling God that is with and for his people 
who only ever knew oppression from the Egyptian gods and the horror of slavery. And so this is written to a people who are in slavery, and so God is bringing an anthem of hope to this people of slavery. It was written for the Hebrew slaves as a foundation for trusting in God as their redeemer. That's what the creation story is actually all about, in my understanding. Second, this is a temple text. The creation story is about God dwelling in his temple, which is the whole earth in the story of creation. Which brings me to my next question. How did human lineage happen if there were no daughters to Adam and Eve? Y'all are funny people. They're asking these funny questions. And if there were, did that mean that their sons slept with their sisters? There's a few ways you can answer this, okay? One would be that answering this question isn't in the interest of the author. That's not why they wrote the story, so they left out those details. A second would be that we not take this literally. It is poetic in nature after all. It's not a narrative. And so, I don't know. (laughs) I guess there's an answer to that. Uh, the third would be that Adam and Eve weren't the only humans that were created. They were the human representatives in the temple. They were the priest and the priestesses, but they were, there were others that were also created on the earth. It's, it's, it's weird, right? When Cain, after he kills his brother, he heads far east. And what does he find way out in the east? A wife. How did she get out there? Far from his homeland, there are people living out there. So though other people aren't mentioned in the story, it's obviously that there are other people on the earth. By the way, none of these are hills I'm willing to die on. You can disagree with me all you want, and we can still be friends. I don't care. You can believe in any form of creation you want. This isn't central to our faith. Okay? We can debate it. We can discuss it. We can defend it, but it's not central to our faith. It leads, though, to the next question. Why all this pain? I don't entirely know who who asked this question, but but why all the pain? And I think, you know, the testimony that Chris gave, I think that's an incredible analogy of why there's so much pain on the world, right? God gave us this beautiful car, and we filled the gas engine with sugar, and we filled the oil with sawdust. And yet God takes it apart, he strips it down to its basic parts, and he puts it back together. That's a beautiful analogy for why there's so much pain in the world. Creation is not as God had intended it otherwise. We screwed it up, right? God wanted a love relationship, and so what does he do? He gives humanity free will, and we've abused it. We've abused our free will. We've abused this relationship with God. We rejected God. We thought that we could do things better than he could, and so we climbed up upon our own thrones, and in our selfish pursuits of our own thrones, we threw creation into chaos. And God said, if you eat of this tree, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And we did it anyway. And the curse of sin is death in all of its various forms. And our experience is broken people as we navigate a broken world that's going to be painful and hard and full of challenges. That's what happens when you walk away from life, right? If this is life and I walk over here, my my, my life's not going to go well. It's, It's not brain surgery. It's not rocket sciences. But God isn't up in heaven thinking, you know what? You guys are getting what you deserve. He's not up there in heaven with his arms folded saying, you know what? You put yourself into this mess. Good luck getting yourself out of it. God's not up in heaven, you know, thinking, look what you did, you little jerks. Name that movie. Home Alone, thank you. Look what you did, you little jerks. No, God 
weeps, God weeps, God weeps over his broken creation. And then compassion enters into the brokenness to carry his creation into newness. Here's a, I, I find it interesting. I, I, I feel, and maybe this because we just live in America, I, I kind of feel like Christianity is the only religious tradition that's ever been tasked with this question. I know that's not true, but it's like we get the bad rap. It's like if your God is so good, maybe that's because we serve a good God, you know? Like we're the only ones who serve a good God, maybe. If your God is so good, then... But let me tell you this, Christianity is the only faith tradition that provides a solution. Every other worldview simply tells you to work at fixing your own solution. Only Christianity offers a solution to your pain. Only Christianity offers you a way out, Jesus. You know, Gideon asked a very similar question that many of us do. He asked, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? The Midianites were attacking the people, so they're being enslaved and oppressed by the Midianites. And he's asking, if the Lord is with us, then, then, you know, where are all those wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hand of Midian. First, you know, God saw God's, God's view um, a few verses before this um, in the story of, the, of Gideon in chapter 6 of Judges. The reason that they're being oppressed by Midian, by the Midianites, is because they'd rejected God's ways, right? If this is life and we walked over here, then we're going to experience pain and hurt and death, right? So they've rejected God's ways. Of course they're experiencing pain and hurt and death. But God's solution to Gideon is an interesting one. He tells them, do you see the injustices taking place in your world? Let me just, let's, let's contextualize this. Do you see the pains taking place, the injustices taking place in your world? That's not a rhetorical question. Do you, does anybody see the pains and the injustices taking place in your world, in your neighborhood, in your household? Empowered by God's spirit, and this spirit, Paul said, is the very first example of the new creation that God is bringing. The spirit that we've all been given, the Holy Spirit, is the first fruit of the new creation that eventually will overcome all of the world. The spirit to step into the brokenness and put the world right back together has been given to Gideon. It's been given to us. And as God did it in us, we should then do it for others. And so what's God's solution? Do you see the injustice is taking place? Do you see the world is broken? Well, go in the strength you have and save your people from Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? And so let me ask you again, do you see the injustices taking place in your community? What's God's solution to the pain in the world? You are. I am. We've been given the Holy Spirit, the first fruit of new creation. So we are ambassadors of new creation, friends. If you see something wrong with the world, go do something about it. That's what God is telling his people to do. We have and always have had a great responsibility as humans to work, to think, to move in ways that progress creation and new creation forward, which brings us to the next two questions. And I only got a couple more, so we're just going to power through this. Uh, maybe not. All right. Um, does AI technology pose a threat to humanity? Why are you, why are you guys ask me these things? All right. My quick, my quick answer is yes. 
but probably not in the way that you think or that I think or that we probably think, at least in its infancy, right? Who knows what's going to happen in five years. I don't think the threat is like we see in the movies. I don't think robots are going to rise up and take over the world, but I have no idea. Who knows, right? But we, here's, here's what I want you to know. We were created to work as people. We are created to work. It is good for us to work. That is a good thing that God put in creation when God said it is all good. Work is a good thing. We are created to work. We are created to think. We are created to be creative. We are created to progress creation forward. And AI can be a tool to help us do this. But when we start handing off our responsibilities to think and write and draw and create and work as humans to artificial agents, we will become less human. And this goes way beyond AI technology, friends. This is a problem with social media. Handing off our need for community and companionship and friendship to social fears makes us less human too. Did you know that the average teenager spends the equivalent of 71 days on social media out of every year? 20% of their life is scrolling on a phone or on a screen. 20%. Think of the, think of the potential that is being lost in this generation as we just bleed out in the front of our screens. How much potential is not being met? How much creativity is squandered? How many relationships aren't being made? We are the most connected generation in the history of the world, and yet we are the most lonely and isolated generation. We're the most technologically advanced generation, and yet we are the most bored generation. When we hand off our innate human tasks and traits to technological advancement, we become less human, and I think that is the true problem with technology. Which leads me to the next question. Is global warming an actual threat? <laughs> probably, and probably my answer is similar to my previous one. Okay, We were created to co-rule and co-reign over creation in just ways that pushes creation towards fa- fruitfulness and flourishing, but instead we have devastated creation for our own selfish wants. We've been lazy with our responsibility to care for the earth. And I'm, I'm guilty of that as well when I throw something away that should be thrown into the recycling can, right? When I walk past the litter, right? When I, when I see the turtle being snagged in the soda net and I don't do anything about it, right? Like, like we, we walk by all the problems in creation all the time. But if you see injustices taking place in your world, what are you supposed to do about it? Something, right? Do something. And when we are the authors of those injustices, that becomes a problem. When our actions bump up against creation and we're starting to decimate creation, that becomes a problem. We've been lazy with our responsibility to care for the earth. And, you know, whether the earth has reached global threatening levels or not, that's up for debate. But we are still responsible to care for the earth, and that's the fundamental point. Okay, so we know we serve oh, – gracious – I can't. I can't. It's 11-11. Guys, i got to get you out of here. It is Father's Day. I'm going to the beach. I got two more questions to answer, which I will do next week. As we also have a business meeting, and friends, you do not want to miss. I know business meetings and business meetings, but my friends, we are also going to update you on all of our capital projects, and there is a lot happening in all of our capital projects, so you do not want to miss next week. Thanks for asking the questions, friends. Continue to be curious. Continue to ask them, and God bless you all. Happy Father's Day. See you later.